0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. So I grew up in an unbelieving uh, household, non-Christian household. I was uh, 10 years in Indiana, 10 years in New York, and now 17 years here in South Carolina. And, And so I... I came to Christ through a ministry called Flirt to Convert, and it's a 401c3 called Just Look at Kyra's Face, and you'll <laughs> understand it. Um, I grew up on Swanson Avenue. Me and Kyra were on the same street. Um, it's a lot like Kevin Arnold and Winnie Cooper from the, uh, from the Wonder Years, high school sweethearts. And uh, it was one morning. Kyra had given me a teen Bible with a roller skater guy on the front. And uh, it was one of those pages with the side to comment about why you shouldn't gossip and hang out with uh, the wrong crowd or whatever. And uh, to the left was this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that read that love was patient and that love was kind and it doesn't envy and it doesn't boast and it's not self-seeking and it's not rude. And I was reading that as a 16-year-old boy and I was so moved because for all of the hunger and appetite that I desired, that list in my life and around my life, I knew I was bankrupt of it. That uh, I was none of those things and that, that the, the, the Jesus that was being talked about in those scriptures, C.S. Lewis says, was awakening my appetite for something I'd never t- tasted before. I mean, isn't that the greatest apologetic, the greatest argument? Like what in the world there are people in Tokyo and, and in Uganda and in America all hungering after the same thing for if we aren't created for something we can't see, if we aren't created for some appetite that must exist somewhere. And so, um, and so I had made the decision right then and there at 16 years old that I was going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. And, um, and I know at this point that that wasn't just words on a page. That was a voice in my heart that was speaking to me that has called me and has been faithful and has never turned me back. And it was his hands and his feet all the way along that have gotten me to this place. I shouldn't be here today if it wasn't, if it wasn't for him. And, um, and so uh, I kind of fumbled in um, past the girlfriend in, into her life and into her family, the Cortellus, The Cortellus is uh, my, uh, Kyra's uh, maiden name, um, three girls, husband and wife, Dave and, and Colleen. And um, I would sit at their table and um, we would uh, eat uh, uh, ziti, baked ziti, and uh, Caesar salad every Wednesday night would go over there and we would just talk about all, all kinds of things. And um, I... I was struck, and maybe you could relate to this as is, is being and having access to a different kind of family, a family that acted and, and looked and, and worked differently than maybe other families that you had had access to previously not a perfect family, but a practicing family. And, uh, and so a couple of things that, as I look back from 16, didn't have the language to, there was, there was um, a heart for righteousness. I had grown up a lot, around a lot of families that laughed at sin, that just thought that you know, being backwards and upside down was just sort of part of the human plight and, and just, you know, laissez-faire and live and let live and like just kind of laugh your way through it or drink your way through it or run your way through it or just try and figure out life. But there's this like call and feeling of righteousness. I saw a hope in the Cretellas that their, their grandmother had passed away, you know, at different times. And there was hard things that went on in their family, hard and even dysfunctional things that they had worked through through decades and even generations of things. But yet still, they had this unwavering hope that there, there was a promise out there that, that spoke a better word, a greater word than the word that was in front of them in their circumstance. And most importantly, at the table uh, of the um, I felt loved. They, uh, they bought me a Bible with my name on it, the little gold letters on it, you know, and gave it to me, and they, they listened. They didn't just shuffle me off into the, you know, corner. They, they, they treated me like a person. They saw me, and uh, they began to know me. And so, if you were to do an inventory of your path with Jesus up until this point, I'm gonna guess that um, more than Sundays, as you reflect back on your journey with Jesus, there are tables that got you here. Not just sermons, not just moments in time with the altar and the worship and the lights. It was like, it was tables, it was faces, it was names, it was eyes. I'm guessing that it was hard for you even maybe to come up with one name to share if you're a follower of Jesus from A to, from a to B to this place right here. It's like, there is no self determined follower of jesus like we have all been at the mercy of his his kind eyes his gentle lips his his kind and strong hands that have not just worked themselves into you know into the air into the into osmosis but as jose 11 says like through the cords and the strands of human kindness it was always him it was always him that was calling us to the table that wouldn't let us go and so um I've been thinking about, um, for, this, for this particular message, you know, it's like the three different messages I want to talk about, like neighbors at the table. This is about neighbors. And the next one, I talk about friends at the table and the last one, family of God at the table, because the table is for all of those different people. But I thought about um, the great commandment, you know? The great commandment is, is, is simply this. It's, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And the second one is the same, to love your neighbor as yourself, and as I did my study this week, you know, I was convicting because um, I think there, there can be, um, in my heart and sometimes in our communities, a sleight of hand on the word neighbor. Uh, it's just easier on the bumper sticker to say love God and love people instead of neighbor, right? Just people. And so, you know, I think that the math problem in my head then just becomes, well, it's like, well, you have people in my life? And it's like, yeah, I've got people. I've got brothers, brothers, sisters, and the neighbor and all that sort of thing. So I've got people in my life. Um, And are you genuinely nice to them? Yeah, like I don't flick them off or whatever. I'm a pretty nice person. I must love God and love people, right? So that's the idea. Check, moving on, you know? But we don't get away that quickly, right? Because there's this prickly little passage in the middle of Luke that uh, a guy is, you know, ignorant enough to ask Jesus what he means by neighbor, (laughs) right? Like, what do you mean by neighbor? And he's like, oh, I'm so glad that you asked that question. That's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. And not to get into it, because there's so many passages. today, and poor Ross, we'd blow up the MacBook of all the passages I want to talk about this morning. But um, but the essential Sparks notes of it is there's three different people. You know, there's a there's a Pharisee and uh, there's a Levite, excuse me, a priest. There's a Levite, and then there's a Samaritan. And although the priest and the Levite both administer the law and teach the law, only the Samaritan practices it. And Jesus ends that sermon and asks, "Well, who is really the neighbor?" And the guy responds, the one who had mercy. In other words, a neighbor is not just someone that we love along the way, someone on the way, but it's someone we'd have to go out of our way to love. And on that rubric, I ask questions about myself. What does it say about me that if I have 21 meals a day and 15,000 dinners ahead of me, if I have no one in my life that doesn't benefit me, that's not like me, and that I'm not obligated to, what does it say about me in my life? following of the great command. The the essence of neighbor is not someone that can benefit you or benefit me or someone that is part of my interest, but he defines it as the poor, the sick, and the lost. Like if Jesus couldn't be any more direct to us this morning about what it would mean to invite neighbors to the table within the context of the great commandment, he would say in Luke 14. You can see it on the screen, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. In other words, neighbors are people you have to go out of your way to find and love. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteousness. And so there are 10 meals in the book of Luke, and we're going to try and look at all of them, three of them today. Jesus is at lots of different tables with lots of different castes and characters Pharisees and tax collectors, and rich and poor, and sinners, and people who think that they're righteous. All these different people that we are supposed to associate with. And we're challenged, I think, to read the passage and not associate ourselves with Jesus. Jesus is taken. (laughs) We're one of the other ones, is kind of what I think the passage is doing. And for all these people and all these different tables, there's one commonality between them all is that Jesus turns every table for the gospel. The table is for sinners to be saved. Every table, every Starbucks, every one of those 15,000, every moment that we have with our friends on Pete Hollis Boulevard, every moment that we have for our apartments, is for sinners like you and me to be saved. He turns every table, every table that we have for the gospel. And so this is the passage that uh, Darrell read just earlier. It's going to be our jump-off passage, the first table that we'll look at today. There's two others. It says in Luke chapter 5, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything he had, and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Um I was downstairs a little bit embarrassed when Timothy came into my office this week because I just got done sobbing over this passage. Uh, I am not a crier. In fact, I have a friend named Skyler who was at Bible study the other day talking about why he's not a crier. And I was jealous because he said that he cried that week. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm just such a hard-hearted little grinch. And so so this passage, it it just crawled inside of me in such a deep way that was so unique to me. And I can only think that it would be the Spirit of God, you know, igniting that and, and, and cultivating that in my heart. But it reminded me that when I was 16, I had no idea how much I had sinned against him. When I was 16, I was in my little tax collector booth doing whatever I thought was right. I had no idea how much people uh, would love me in my life, how much people would hurt me in my life. I had no idea how much um, people would come through um, uh, false pretenses and and their own flesh and, and and sinful desires to come and and try and kill and attack and, and steal and, and and the dark forces I guess and the principalities as Paul talks about would come against my life like I had no idea the cost that Jesus had to pay for me I had no idea of what was at stake I just heard him call my voice call my heart and I knew it was it was the voice that I was to follow and and there's and there's been so much since being on that little street when I was 16 years old on Swanson Drive, that Jesus has given me. There's so much that I wouldn't have have known. There's so much that he has put before me. He's put wisdom before me and fathers before me and brothers and sisters around me. He's given me a wife that loves Jesus and kids that love Jesus. There's so much that he's done. And I was just 16 years old in my tax collector booth and I didn't know the difference from up or down. And all I had was... Was, was a voice to follow. And, and so what is the gospel except the fact that before we chose him, he chose us. I didn't know my own good. I thought I was my own best friend, but I was my own worst enemy. He, before I loved him, he loved me. Before he loved you, before you loved him, before you ever sang a song to him, he loved you. Before you called on him, he called you. This is, this is what is happening in this passage. That's not just this man's story. It's our story, is that in these places, That ourselves and our societies, will see labels, he sees names. And he calls, Levi, come and follow me. But not only that, notice what happens next in verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. In other words, that when Jesus comes to visit a person, he doesn't just change that person, he changes his table. He changes the tax collector's booth into a banquet for the gospel, and, the, and, 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 and the, out of the woodworks comes all of these other tax collectors, these Mike's and Susan's and Patties and Jim's and John's and Matt's and, and Sharon's and Timothy's and, and all of these other little tax collectors who don't know up for down or right from wrong, and they're all just in their little tax collectors, and they're coming for a meal, and they don't know that they're about to receive the good news of the gospel right here at this tax collector's booth because Jesus doesn't just tame, change labels into names but changes tax booths into banquets to invite people into this gospel. And so, necessarily... He is changing not only not only our lives when he calls us, little 16-year-old kids, kids in tax collector booths who don't know up from down, to receive the very inheritance of God, not only to change their name, but to change their table as well. And so I'm, I'm a little bit dated here, but maybe you've seen this movie, The, the, the Schindler's List. Have you seen Schindler's List before? And so um, it's, it's about you know um, the Holocaust in, in World War II and the Nazi internment camps and so on and so forth. And so it's about this guy, named Schindler, you know, who covertly works, you know, within his realms of influence um, uh, within the government door to free, to free people out of uh, Nazi internment camps. And so um, the movie's pretty long and, uh, and, and pretty, pretty vivid and beautiful. And, uh, and by the end of it, there's a little train scene where he gets to see the names and the faces, the, the people that he was able to make an impact on. Uh, and instead of Joy he experienced this kind of pang of regret maybe you guys are remembering the end of the passage or the end of the movie rather that he's talking about he just kept, he keeps talking about like through his tears like how many more he could have saved he holds up this pen and he just says this pen like I could have used this pen to save one more person is what he's saying and there's something about this along with the you know the wise shrewd steward in the middle of the gospels here in Luke of, of, of of when Jesus calls our name, that he not only changes our name, but he changes our table as well. And our tables, they don't just become these places of respite and these places of celebration and these places of getting people ready to be married and be handed away in marriage, although those are wonderful things to gather around the table for. But ultimately, every table Jesus is at, Jesus is using for the gospel. He's using for ransom. The sinners would be saved. And so, so this is, I think, what happens to this, this Levi guy, right? Then Levi held a grand banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors... You know, the ones that are next to you in the cubicle and in the gym. Quiet, desperate souls that we think that everybody has a table like ours, but not everybody is at a table and not everybody has a name to call on and not everybody, not everybody has heard the good news and not everybody has feet that's beautiful to bring it. And so he's changing you, but he's changing, he wants your table. You cannot read this passage to not see that the transformation of the soul is the transformation of the table. The table is telling our story. The table is the lived out drama of what's going on in our heart. So who is at your table And what is happening at your table? Because the one who truly sees the kingdom of God understands above all other things, their table is ransom money. It is an opportunity to invite somebody to a common steak or sandwich, but to see and be invited into the very kingdom of God. That is what God is doing, no less than that at our tables. And so he diagnoses the tax collector, but then next, in this next passage, he diagnoses the Pharisee, another character at the table, verse 30. But the Pharisee and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 31 Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, when Jesus arrives at the tables, there's a, there's a colorful cast of characters that gather around him, and it's different areas of wealth and and socioeconomic status and backgrounds and context and access to the gospel, Jew and Gentile alike, and so he's gathering all these tables for one purpose, to turn them for the gospel to invite sinners to be saved. But there's one particular person or character that shines out above the others that's a little bit different. Because Pharisees, as Jesus will talk about even in this passage, are like all the other sinners, right? They're just like every other one of these sinners, except the thing that sets them apart a category other than all the other five or six categories of people is that there is a woe over their life because woe is the person, right, that sins and doesn't know their own sin, right? If you have a, a person that's sick, it's one thing to be sick. Like, that's a pretty bad situation to be in. But if you're sick and you don't know that you're sick, you're in a very desperate situation. And this is exactly what he's saying, that all people that are gathering around the table are at the same place, coming on the same ground. But woe is the person who doesn't know their sin. So the definition of a Pharisee is not somebody with khaki pants, right, and a plaid shirt and has a doctorate in in theology. The Pharisaical thing can show up in any different place, and it just shows up in this place, that a person would have a sin that they didn't know that they had, that they are blind to their sin. Anyone here know of somebody that's blind to their sin? That is kind of the plight that we're always in, the Jacobs of the world, like you and me, right? It's easier to see someone else's sin than somebody else's. And so, uh, as, as Paul said in Romans, Romans, what is it, four or five? It's like, you who teach people not to steal, don't you steal? You who look down on people that have lust, don't you have lust in your heart too? And so these sinners, right, this audience of sinners that profiles into the tables of Jesus alongside us as we're there are not windows, they're mirrors. They're invitations to the great eye-opening experience and revelation that we are all sinners at his table. And every sinner is the same, but woe to the one who doesn't know their own sin. And if we could identify somebody maybe even in this room that has sin that they don't know about, I wonder what it might say about us, that every sinner is not a window but a mirror. And so here's what Jesus does. He lays out this, um, this uh, guiding uh, metaphor, this guiding parable in the book of Luke uh, that, that really helps us uh, interpret all the rest of the stories, and it's a parable about soils, In that particular passage, he says that there's four different types of soil. There's one kind of seed, which is the word of God, but then there's four different types of soil. And you're meant to end with this impossibility, this improbability of of soil that's bad becoming good again. And so what's going to happen in this next table that I would love to go to in Luke chapter uh, 7 is that Jesus uh, is not just intent with talking to tax collectors and talking to prostitutes, but he's also intent on seeing the gospel meet Pharisees like you and me. He's interested in breaking the soil. And so the the diagnosis, the problem of the Pharisee and the tax collector and and the prostitute is that they all have these different kinds of soil, but ultimately the the solution has to be something outside of them that has to come and break up our soil, that has to stir us up, that has to break us down and and surprisingly um, catch us um, and and provoke us into seeing something in a new way. So if you're with me in Luke chapter 7... Here's how it plays out in the life of this Pharisee. Luke chapter seven, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Verse 39. When the Pharisees, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. And what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. He says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Verse 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, and the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this one who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Anybody have a prodigal stumble into your life every now and again? You know, that guy just in your fridge, just raiding, no manners. He's just up in there. He's a mess. She's a mess. She's calling you in the middle of the night at a time when it's least convenient. She's interrupting you. She's interrupting your party. She's inviting herself to the table. She's talking about herself and not about anything else. And she's just a mess. And she's just interrupting everything that you set the table for in the first place. Jesus is not content with allowing soil to be hard. He's come to break the soil and he'll do it with any means possible. And so ultimately, the woman is not just there for her, she's there for him. And Jesus has drawn her to himself in front of that guy for a reason, because he wants to catch this man's attention, to remind him that tables are for tears. Tables are for oil. Tables are for kisses on the feet of Jesus. In other words, tables are not for iPhones. With our proud scrolling about what we have and what we've done and who we are, validating ourselves with the things that we put on the table and the fine wines and the fine foods that celebrate all that we have and all that we've built and all that we have, right? They're not there for the pride of the heart. They're there for the tears of vulnerability and humility. And so do our tables look more like his or like hers? Our tables are not you know, for, for the self-satisfaction of talking about the trip that we went on, the thing that we did and how the people that we know, Right? It's for the oil of worship to pour forth. I've got to tell you about the one who called me. I've got to tell you about what he's doing in my life because the tables are for the gospel, not for our capital K kingdoms. The tables are not for our idolatry that we would talk about football more than Jesus at our tables and wonder where our family's health goes and where our hearts go and where our souls are when we have more room to talk, right, and and worship the idols of our day rather than kiss the feet of Jesus. And so, She's, she's actually not just there for her, she's there for him. And as a matter of fact, she's not the guest, she's the host, so that he can be the guest to the feast that she's hosting for him. And to show him one thing, the only thing that matters at this table, right, in this gathering, is the beautiful feet of Jesus. Do you see the beautiful feet of Jesus? Isaiah 52 says they've got bruises on them. They've got cuts on them. They've got direction to them because they wouldn't relent. Before you were calling on him, he was calling on you. Before you knew his name, he knew your name. Before you ever chose him, he chose you first. And those feet would not take your rejection seriously. Rather, they would continue to move upon your life to break up your soil so that you, the sinner, could be saved. And so the main attraction of this dinner is not about what's on the table, but who's around it. And the beautiful feet that she's pouring her life onto because our tables are not for what we've done and who we have and what we've accomplished and who we are. They're for sinners to be saved at the table of the gospel. And so she is the great host and he's the guest to see those beautiful feet. Those beautiful feet that met us, as little tax collectors, this little upside down sinners that didn't know our own sin and didn't know where we were and didn't know up from down. He continued to pursue us when we were pursuing him. It's the feet, it's the feet, it's the hands and feet that got us here. And so he he goes one layer deeper. Go with me to Luke chapter 11, and this is really where, um, where he gets into the heart and the diagnostic. Behind the table, there's a heart. At every table, there's a drama that's being played out. Who is at the table, and what's being said at the table, and why are we at the table in the first place? And so the diagnostic of the heart goes like this. Blessed is the man, right? who is poor in spirit and realizes his sin, but woe to the person who doesn't know their own sin because if you're sick, at least you go to the doctor. But if you don't think you're sick, you're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. And so he, he goes through these woes. I mean, woes is like a, not a W-H-O-A-H, right? It's a woe, W-O-E. It's like a pity with a warning attached to it. And he goes through, in this case, four different woes. Luke 11, verse 37, "'Then Jesus finished speaking. The Pharisees invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table.'" But the Pharisees were surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, now, then you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish and inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Then he hits you with four woes. Verse 42, he says, woe to you Pharisees because you give a tenth God in your mint, rue, and all the other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So I tried to develop language on the first woe. I, I saw this call that the Pharisees, the heart of the Pharisee, the table of the Pharisee is reflecting the heart of the Pharisee, and the heart of the Pharisee is sacrifice comes before mercy. That I am who I am because what I've done and the reason I'm at this table is not because of his feet, but because of my feet. I'm the one who earned. I'm the one who was obedient. I'm the one who did the thing. I'm the reason why I'm here. And so I gave my 10% and I did my good deed and I served this and I did that, right? And, I, and I've gotten, gotten the guilt off of my back by my own work. And so the first woe says that sacrifice is greater than mercy. Verse 43, woe to the Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, the second woe I have was about being exalted. He talks a lot about exalting yourself or humbling yourself, and God will exalt those who are humbled and humble those that are exalted. And so I wonder in what ways that um, the way that, that we gather in our, in our meeting places, the clothes that we have on, the things that we talk about, the things that we serve, is it about his feet or our feet? Is it telling a story about what I've done and who I am and what I have or something about the feet that have come to bring good news to me? Am I exalting myself or are the meals and the people and the relationships that I'm cultivating, are they, are they humbling myself so that I can be reminded and remind others of the feet that got me here, the feet that bring good news? And lastly, verse 44, woe to you because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing. In other words, speaking and talking about spiritual things without actual spiritual content. And so it gets really awkward, right? So verse 45 says this, one of the experts of the law are like, Jesus, when you're talking about all this stuff, it kind of sounds like you're talking about us. Are we, it's like, slow to take. Are you, is that me? Are you talking to me? And friends, this gospel is written to prostitutes and tax collectors, but one of the main reasons why the parables are given, one of the main reasons why all these events are happening is because he's not just talking to them, he's talking to the Pharisees, that the soil will be broken up because the gospel is for the church too. It's the gospel is for you and for me. And he's not just not talking about them, he's talking for us, that they might be the host, that we might be the guests to recognize the feet that are in our presence, the one who came to save, the one who came to change. And so I think this is ultimately the heart of all of the woes, is that it's very possible to associate with the gospel without participating in it at all. Read on, it says, Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Verse 47, woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, And it was your ancestors who killed them, so you testify and you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and they build their tombs. Because of this, God, in his wisdom, said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, the generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible to it all. Closing up 52. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers law began to oppose him fiercely, and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. And so, um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. I um, went out a state to go and visit this um, really awesome uh, big ministry, and there uh, were healings going on through the ministry, and there were salvations going on through the ministry, and um, there was just a real heart of Jesus in the presence of God was really uh, visiting, you know, this particular ministry. And so I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, that uh, the closer that you get to sometimes in ministry, the closer you get um, to the center of the ministry, the more kind of disappointed you can get. Uh, I would have said in that experience that the core group of people um, that, were, that were leading and preaching and praying and, and serving um, were, were so full of, full of the Spirit and, and in um, a really, I think, powerful moment, I guess, in, in that ministry. But along the way, there was, there was a group of people that you would kind of talk to and, and whether they were just there, you know, with the name tags or organizing, you know, the budget or doing different things that seemed so distant from what was going on at the center, at the middle of what was going on at the ministry. And so, um, and so isn't it true that sometimes you can be so close to somebody that familiarity breeds contempt? That you can be so close to... To Jesus in this sense, Judas was over the money and trusted, obviously, within disciples and probably preached the gospel and prayed for people, but he was so close to the gospel that he didn't participate in it, that there was a woe over his life that he was so close to Jesus he had contempt for him. And one of the worst woes, all of the woes that are listed here in the Pharisaical thing, diagnosing the Pharisee's heart, is that if you practice the Great Commission without the Great Commandment, you make disciples of someone other than Jesus, The millstone around the neck is not just for child pedophiles. It's for people who make converts of someone other than Jesus and practicing the Great Commission without the Great Commandment to love my neighbor, someone that I'd have to go out of the way to love. I'm making a convert of someone just as blinded as me. And so the poor get poorer in this thing and the woe get woer in this thing because the worst possible thing for me to to do the Great Commission without the Great Commandment is to make a convert of myself and make them just as blind as me. There's somebody worse that doesn't know their own sin is teaching somebody else to forget their sin and project it on somebody else and make up their own kingdom and come to their own table and forget the tables are for sinners to be saved. That would be a heavy burden to bear. And so it all comes crashing down to this kind of final parable, I think, that brings all this together in clarity. You guys know the story of the prodigal son? The story of the prodigal son is actually given in front of Pharisees because it's not about the younger son, it's about the older one. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the and calf because he has him back safe and south. In other words, there's a table somewhere off in the distance of the music that I'm not at, but I can hear it, and there's tears there, and there's oil there, and there's kisses there on Jesus' feet, but I'm not there, I'm outside. I might think that I'm inside, but I'm out. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and frustrated and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. And he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But then when his son, this son of yours has come home and he squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you will kill the fat and calf for him. My son, the father said. And this, I think, this, I think is, the, is the truth that could pierce the heart of even the hardest Pharisee. The truth that we would need to trust today, that we would remember today, is verse 31. The gospel for the Pharisee is that my son, your father said, or the father said, you have always been with me. You have always been with me. When Jesus um, got done talking to the Pharisees, you know what happened. He went outside. Outside's not a good thing. Jesus is never an outsider, so Jesus is outside. He's not the one that's outside. When Adam took the fruit, he had to go outside. When Judas had, had the enemy come into his body, he went outside. Outside is not a good word, and this is where this guy finds himself. He's outside. Apparently not outside of the family, but at least outside outside the table of Jesus. And so the father comes outside to go and meet him. Did you catch that? He goes outside to come and meet this older, older brother and says, don't you know that you are always with me and everything I have is yours? Don't you know that it wasn't your youth pastor and it wasn't that preacher and it wasn't that worship song and it wasn't that table and it wasn't that coffee and it wasn't that rebuke that your 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 friend told you and it wasn't that conversation you had with your spouse it was always me don't you know that I have always been with you and everything I have is yours? But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours was dead alive and now the lost um, has been found. And so I think the startling statement for every one of us disciples in the room, you know, when when somebody said that, when Jesus said that somebody was gonna betray him, all the disciples had that question, is it me? That is a healthy question to be asking because it'd be a bad place to be in sin, but it'd be another bad place to not know the sin that we're in. It's not know how hard our heart is and he is sending prodigals and and footwashers and tears, and oil, that he might continue to wake us up, that the time is not too late, that he wants to change us, he wants to change our tax collector booths into banquets. And so this would be the question, I think, the startling, provoking question, like, what if we lived in Jesus' family, but we didn't eat at his table? What if the reason why we are not seeing, you know sinners saved, and we're not seeing the gospel lived out, is because Jesus is outside. I'm not saying he's outside of our life. I'm not saying that he's not holding you. I'm not saying that you're not part of his family. I'm not saying that you're not held in salvation. I'm just saying that it is possible to be part of his family, but not sitting at his table. And so ultimately, the real problem is, is, is that if, if tax collector booths do not become banquets, they do become bunkers. And they become little hideouts and little places that I run from the workaday world and all the stresses and the pains, and I huddle in my family, and it's about what I have and what I can do and what I can keep, and it's just keeping the food on the table and forgetting about who is around the table and forgetting that the table in Jesus is for the gospel, and so, and so ultimately, tax collector booths that do not become banquets do become, they do become bunkers, and Jesus doesn't hide in bunkers, and we don't want to be in His family but not at His table. We want tears at our table. We want oil at our table. We want kisses of the feet of Jesus on his table because his feet have been beautiful to us. We are not the ones who brought our feet to the table. It was him that called us before we ever called him. I have always been with you, says the Father, and everything I have is yours. And so ultimately halfway through the week, this passage, you know, kind of moved from to me in my mind of like a sermon idea to like a uh, like a vision idea, you know, like what's always important, not just like what's sometimes important, but what's always important. Because I believe that in an hour like this, like the future of church is not online, it's at tables. I believe that like what he's stirring in hearts for the, for the present and for the future, like we will, we will not be able to. He's too good to allow us to just do ministry and altars on Sundays. Like it's got to be at the tables or nowhere else. Because a sinner changed is a table changed. It is a tax collector booth that's given, right, to tax collectors and sinners because every table is for the gospel. It's for banquets. It's not to keep people out. It's to bring people in the 21 meals we have a day or the 15,000 more dinners that you have left at your dinner table. Who is at your table? And I think a lot of the reasons of like the discontent and the, and the deconstruction, you know, of church is like, you know, like of the top three that I can think of, like, why aren't more people healed? I mean, come on, Jesus, like, why aren't more people healed? Like, why don't we have have sick people that are healed? And I wonder if he would just say to us, well, why aren't sick people at your table? You can't, you can't practice the Great Commission without the Great Commandments. Why aren't more people saved, Jesus? I mean, we have all these services and we have all the altar calls and they're not coming down. It's like, well, maybe they're coming to your table. Are they at your table? This is where we win and lose, right? It's at the table. Why are all these pastors falling and these big machines are being created? Well, it's hard to entertain a lot of people when we're not doing ministry at the table. And maybe the reason why we're seeing some of the problems and the to in the, in the in the angst within Christians in this day is because he's too good to let us settle for something he didn't call us to, to let us be successful at something that he didn't tell us to do because he always told us that the gospel is for the table. And so the gospel is for our neighbors, the ones we go out of the way to love. And so here's the beautiful thing about that vision that's scalable, right, that's just reproducible and good for every season is that some of us have jobs and some of us don't and some of us have musical skills and some of us should never sing and don't ever try out for that, right? Some of us will preach and some of us won't. Some of us are rich and some of us are poor, but all of us have tables. And every sinner saved has a table that's changed, a table that goes from tax collecting, that's just about me and mine and getting from the Romans what I can get from the Romans and getting from the Jews what I can get from the Jews and just helping myself out to turning that table inside out for banquets, because banquets are for ransom. Banquets are for sinners to be saved that they might not become bunkers. So all of us have a table, and so the question would become for families, for neighbors, for nations, like. They belong to the gospel. And what is happening at our table? So I have a couple of intentional uh, questions today. I'm actually gonna invite Graham up to pray and I would love for you to think about one person today that you might just begin praying for and, and seeking the Lord's heart for. Um, if we have a microphone, Graham, we'll give it, give it to, to, uh, to Graham as we close in prayer today. But, um, but the questions I have, um, the first is, uh, go to the next one. The next one about uh, the who. Keep going. Oh, is there a, oh, go back. Yeah, go left, yeah. So the first question that I want uh, you to consider is, uh, is just that question, um, who is at the table? And so the next slide says this. I wonder if the Lord, uh, there it is, has even um, this week interrupted you with someone you'd have to go out of the way for, an interruption to your day that's actually not an interruption but a call to the gospel. And I wonder what it would like be like for you to let them host you, that they would be the guests and you'd be the host. And out of the 21 meals that you have ahead of you this week, to break bread with one person, with one neighbor. And so who might that person be? The next question I have is at these tables, as we uh, process life and, and do ministry together, is what is being talked about? And so um, I love this language. I actually got this from uh, Matt Chandler. I really enjoyed the way that he put this, is that we're always having these conversations, and the conversations are, are going deeper, not, not shallower. And so we start at the surface. Notice it's not religion, politics, and money. (laughs) We're talking about the normal things that we're about to talk about. Once we say amen, we're going to talk about sports, and we're going to talk about movies and trips and food and holidays, and all those things are beautiful things to celebrate, but not at the expense of the heart of the Father, of what he's come to do, to be the hands and feet to the person in front of you. And so the next question I would wonder about different topics that might come up is some more serious things that might take a little bit more risk. You will get hurt. We will get hurt. We will be betrayed. We will be taken advantage of. They will take your kindness as being a doormat but then again, so that they did Jesus as well. And so these conversations, let them not stay, go back to the other one, uh, Ross, they will not stay at the surface level, but they will get into the marriage conversations and the parenting conversations. Those are all gospel conversations. Church conversations and work and kids and dreams, so that, the very last question, you might speak to the one at the table, the one that's been called to your table, about the stuff of eternity, about prayer, about sonship, Are you talking with your children? Are you talking with your spouse? Are you cultivating a table at home that revolves around the narrative of forgiveness because that is the narrative of our redemption in our lives? Are you speaking about temptation and the evil that has come against you and the deliverance that Jesus is offering you? Are you talking about regret and how Jesus just doesn't wash over it but he redeems it? Are you talking about fears? The fear of man and every other kind of fear, are you talking about faith and the difference between faith and works? Are we talking about the things Jesus is talking about as he turns our table over for the gospel? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.